0: Our coverage of the state versus Derek Chauvin concludes. Professor David Schultz returns to walk us through the verdict, the sentencing, and possible fate of the other officers charged. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you so much for being here. We're gonna jump right in after we thank our sponsor here. Thank you, NOTA. NOTA is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOta management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit TrustNota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello one more time to Professor David Schultz from the University of Minnesota Law School and Hamlin University. Welcome back, Professor. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you very much to the audience. Well, let's jump right in. So I want to do a little setup on my first question here. And so, you know, as I was kind of thinking about this uh, Derek Chauvin trial, you know, I was uh, thinking about the the three charges. I was thinking about all the complicated issues before the jury. You know, I thought about the, um, the unusual admittance of the prior arrest of George Floyd that you and I had talked about in a previous episode, that timeline that was built out as part of the uh, evidence, uh, the multiple body cams, uh, the multiple calls to paramedics experts that disagreed on cause of death and use of force. And the reason I bring those elements in is that I was a little surprised that not one juror found reasonable doubt on second-degree murder and third-degree murder. Now, of course, as you and I discussed, I thought the most likely charge that they would get a uh, guilty verdict on would be second-degree manslaughter. So I guess my first question to you, Professor, were you as surprised as I was how quickly the verdict came in and then also uh, guilty on all three counts?
1: I was surprised on both counts. I originally thought that it would take at least let's say 2 to 3 days in terms of returning a verdict i thought the jury was going to spend perhaps all day on tuesday reviewing the evidence in terms of making decisions regarding guilt but obviously the jurors you know you know they're in the courtroom they're hearing everything you know they're seeing things that the rest of us don't see assessing credibilities and weighing evidence they obviously saw the matter different than the rest of us did and it looks like at this point they were pretty convinced pretty solidly by the time We got to the conclusion of the trial uh, that George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin and that Derek Chauvin didn't enjoy any of the qualified immunities that go with what a reasonable police officer would have. So I was really surprised, again, on how quickly um, it happened. And two, again, surprised that they agreed to all to all three of them. As fast as they did, because I thought it was just going to take a couple of days for each one to be able to work it out. So, at the end of the day, you have to give both the hats off to the prosecution for presenting what appears to be a very strong case. And perhaps, maybe saying that while the defense was good, maybe the defense at the end of the day just didn't have the arguments that were there to persuade the jury. I mean, think of it this way the defense might have been so weak because the case was so strong for the prosecution. Yeah, that could be, you know. And I think, uh,
0: you know, I, I gave some thought about the last uh, last time we were on the air together about just sort of the the relatively thin defense in terms of, you know, experts, you know, compared to the thirty eight that the prosecution brought. And just wondering after you had mentioned that uh, if that played a factor. But uh, let's walk through the uh, counts and the verdict here. And so, what I'd like to do, is you know, not everybody listens to listen to the show is a legal expert. And so, can you walk us through the counts, the verdict, and then? Give a kind of a layman's explanation as to what Derek Chauvin was
1: ultimately found guilty of. Well, keep in mind that all three of the counts, whether it's second degree murder, it is second degree manslaughter or third degree murder, all required an initial showing of the same thing that it, he caused the death of George Floyd or substantially was was the cause of his death. So clearly for all three counts, you know, this is the actus reus we're going to look at here the actus reus was that the jury was convinced at the end of the day that what the knee on the neck was exactly what it looked like. It was a knee on the neck that what either cut the blood flow or oxygen flow that killed that killed George Floyd. So all three of them had to show that. But in terms of more specifically, let's start with third degree murder. With third degree murder, required is that you had to show that somebody was engaging in an act that was eminently dangerous to others that displayed a depraved mind. Well, putting the knee on the neck is probably an act that's eminently dangerous to somebody else. And the fact, I'm suspecting, but we don't know, that he didn't take the knee off the neck, despite the fact that George Floyd was pleading with him, saying, I can't breathe, probably convinced the jury. That's evidence of of a depraved mind. When we get to um, second degree manslaughter, again, also had to show that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd, but the standard was you had to show culpable negligence where someone's actions create an unreasonable risk of causing death or great bodily harm to somebody else. And I would say the same thing. The court interpreted the actions of Derek Chauvin, knee on the neck, refusal to listen to the police as what? um, Evidence of a culpable negligence, which Minnesota courts describe as what? Gross negligence. And then the second degree murder is what's called the felony murder doctrine in Minnesota. And in order to prove that, First of course had to show that he caused the death of George Floyd, but the felony murder says that you can escape having to prove intentionality for second degree murder if you can show that somebody died while in the process of committing an assault upon or another felony upon somebody else. And here the prosecution merely had to show that what that Derek Chauvin was was assaulting George Floyd. And again, I suspect the jury was convinced that putting a knee on the neck constituted assault. So that would have been the basis for it. That at the end of the day, I think what, if we're looking especially at the state of mind, it is his, that is Derek Chauvin's, what seems to be indifference to the pleas of George Floyd, to his failure to think about what it's like to put a knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds when the person is pleading for their life. That I think push them over, both in terms of convincing them regarding the criminal liability, but also, as the experts pointed out, that this was something way beyond what is considered to be reasonable by a police officer.
0: When the verdict came out, I heard something that I was worried about, Professor, and I cannot remember who said it because, you know, all of my alerts just got blown up with all of the media cycle beginning. And so I heard this from somebody and they said that the judge, the parties and the courthouse staff all knew about the verdict in advance before it was officially announced. And so I wanted to ask you, is that true or is that just rumor?
1: That's rumor. That's clearly rumor at this point, because the judge does not know of the verdict until what? If you watched it on you know, live streaming or whatever, the judge opens up an envelope that comes from the jury, looks at it, and then asks the jury, have you reached a verdict? Under no circumstances should he have known. At most, what the judge knew is a verdict was coming down. And I think partly why there was a gap between the time when it was announced there was a verdict and it was a verdict read was to prepare what the courthouse to prepare, let us say security in the area. But I didn't hear that rumor at all. And so I can't speak to you know the validity of, of that rumor or, or, the, or whether that rumor existed or not, but certainly it would be considered inappropriate for the judge or anybody to have known the verdict.
0: You know, that was my thought, too. I just I'd heard that, you know, and obviously with all the security concerns, I was wondering if uh, maybe an exception was made, but it sounds like not. So, well, let's uh, let's turn to sentencing. And so uh, just in terms of the next steps in uh, in this process, tell us about the sentencing process for Derek
1: Chauvin. What's that going to look like? Well, the judge announced that we're not going to see sentencing for approximately two months. What's going to happen between now and the next two months? is that there'll be what's called a PSI, a pre-sentencing investigation report will be put together, which is routinely what happens, which in terms of decides what, where the person's gonna be incarcerated, what type of conditions there are, what kind of factors surrounding they should be considered in sentencing. And then also under under Minnesota law, the prosecution and the defense have an opportunity to be able to comment regarding and offer evidence regarding whether Derek Chauvin's sentence should depart from the sentencing guidelines. Minnesota has sentencing guidelines. And even though, for example, let's say with second degree murder, the maximum sentence is 40 years under the sentencing guideline grid. Um, He's a first time offender. There's a presumptive sentence of 150 months or 12 and a half years. And what the prosecution is gonna ask for is to say that given the type of crime that existed here, we would like to have an upward departure by the judge. And that's what's gonna be happening for the next couple of months is the judge is gonna have to consider factors that may ratchet up the presumptive sentence. And so the prosecution has already said the fact that this was observed what was happening by children ought to deserve a greater punishment. I suspect at some point the prosecution is gonna say that the particular, what, heinousness or 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 maybe other factors are gonna deserve upward departure. So this is what's gonna happen for the next two months. I should also point out that under Minnesota law that generally sentences are served concurrently, but judges do have some discretion in cases of multiple convictions of doing consecutive sentences, but we will assume for now that with three convictions, they're all served simultaneously, whatever the maximum is, but there's nothing that would preclude the judge from stacking one on top of the, another and saying, you're going to serve, I don't know, 150 months for, for second degree murder, and then you know add in the additional sentences so that it becomes much more cumulative.
0: So just to sum all of that up, I mean, what you're saying is that we could see a sentence as small as 12.5 years on up to over
1: 40 years. Is that correct? Absolutely correct at this point. I think most people are thinking it's probably going to be way in excess of of 12 and a half years, but we just don't know yet. And that's what we're going to find out within a couple of months um, exactly what's going to happen. Now, I'm also going to throw in a couple of other things, which not too many people are talking about right now one of them is we have to be blunt here you know here's an individual who's a white police officer who's now been found guilty of killing a black man african-american man he is going to be sentenced to prison in a state where there's a very high percentage of people of color i wonder if the state of minnesota is going to incarcerate him here or if they're going to send him out of state, um, uh, because I think the risk to him is pretty high. And in fact, right now he's in Oak Park Heights, which is our supermax in Minnesota, and he's in 23-hour isolation every day, no contact with other prisoners, because I think the state is worried at this point that if he were in the general population, he's probably going to get killed.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty complicated uh, wrinkle there. So yeah, well, I guess we will uh, we will see pretty soon. Well, let's talk about appeal elements. And so, you and I had an opportunity to kind of discuss a few of these as our episodes together went on. And so, I want to go down a list of bullet points before I ask my question here, just to kind of sum up all of the uh, possible issues here. And so, early on, I had mentioned that I thought it was unusual for the uh, state of Minnesota not to move this trial somewhere else. You know, changing venues because of all the publicity. And so, I thought that was unusual. the The other thing that I thought was unusual is that there was a civil settlement with the Floyd family that came out and was announced right before the criminal trial. So I thought that was unusual. The other thing that you and I both thought about was just that the jury being sequestered kind of late in the process. And so that may have an impact. And then of course, you and I had a back and forth there about some of the questions and evidence that were allowed that were probably outside the normal. And, you know, for a case like this, but externalities played, up, uh, played a part here. You had the arrest of Dante Wright, which unfortunately ended up in a killing while he tried to escape his arrest. And then you, know, you had public officials weighing in, you know, politicians and mayors and people of national stature weighing in on this. And so there's a lot there. And so my, my, my question to you is two parts. So what is the likelihood of an appeal? And then do you think that appeal in some way will be successful?
1: I will guarantee 100% that there will be an appeal. I cannot imagine that the defense won't do it. It's going to go up through the Minnesota court system. And what we have to think about here now is, will the court overturn, a higher court overturn this case? It's going to be basically on what? Sixth Amendment um, grounds, which is going to be that you couldn't have had a fair trial. It's assuming our, our appeal is just on this. There could very well be appeals on other issues, too. Appellate courts are generally very strict in giving presumptions of validity to lower court decisions, not wanting to lightly overturn them. So there's a variety of tests or language that the court's going to look at. They're going to ask, for example, was the the, the trial atmosphere so prejudiced that a fair trial was impossible? They're going to look at, for example, are there specific allegations that you can recount? as you just described here, and show clear bias on the part of jury to show that a a jury could not have rendered a fair verdict. Now, of course, if we had a clear smoking gun, let's say we had two jurors who did affidavits afterwards and said, there's no way I could have voted to acquit because I was afraid for my life or afraid for, let's say, riding across the city. That's a pretty good smoking gun. Short of that, The court's going to have to look at these particular allegations, kind of weigh them in a totality of circumstances situation, and say, is there enough that persuades us that the presumption of validity of a fair trial is overturned by factors that suggest that the atmosphere was so contaminated, so pervaded by bias, we couldn't have gotten a fair trial. And that's going to be a tough call, because I think one could point to a lot of instances where there are factors that potentially did affect the the outcome of this of of this trial and I just don't know where it's going to go because give you some timeline here it's probably going to be approximately two years after sentencing that we would might see a, a decision by the court of appeals assuming there's an appeal and I think there would be Minnesota court of appeals I should say and then if there's an appeal after that to the Minnesota Supreme Court that could march it out another year and let's say conceivably this is the kind of case the U.S. Supreme Court might want to weigh into. That's another year or two. What we're looking at here is that it could very well be possible from two to five years from now, we're still having a discussion about the final resolution of this case on whether evidentiary or fair trial issues. All right. Well, last question for you, Professor. Uh, the other officers that were charged as part of this arrest—they they were charged
0: with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and manslaughter. So, you know, given that uh, you've got three—you uh, know—three charges of guilty here uh, with Derek Chauvin. What what do you think is
1: going to happen with them? Are those cases going to proceed too? They are going to proceed to schedule for August, and I think this several different possibilities. One is the fact that there's a guilty verdict here, which means we've proved the underlying crime might make it easier to show aiding and abetting. Conversely, I wonder if the attorneys representing in that case are going to say that, guess what? Um, Not guilty. Why? Because they already got the guilty party. Or third, which I am wondering now, does this put increased pressure upon them to take a plea bargain? Are they going to be willing to say, we're not going to take a chance on a jury verdict at this point, and we're going to cop a plea? I think all three of those are likely scenarios to consider. Well,
0: I guess we'll see pretty soon here in the timeline. So, well, Professor, thank you so much for helping us out with this multi-part series. I really appreciate your time and expertise today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you to the audience.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in and making this show part of your day. I hope you found this series informative and worth your while. And also, once again, thank you to our sponsor, Nota. You can find them at trustnotacom forward slash legal. That's Nota, spelled N-O-T-A. And last but not least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LT and audio crew for being so flexible during this series of episodes. Much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.